Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Patty Skinkus. It's March 1st, 2019. We're at Oregon State University. Uh, and Patty, we're going to start you off by asking, uh, why viticulture? Well, originally my attraction to was to horticulture. So really the production of interesting plants for me. I, I didn't originally work with horticultural crops in a younger stage of my life. I was, I've always been in agriculture, so I grew up in agriculture. Knew I liked working with plants, and I liked working with farmers, so production. Um, and horticulture was interesting to me. Didn't grow up working with horticultural crops, decided to focus on that. And as I learned different aspects of horticulture, which there's many, I learned about viticulture, and I mm-hmm. thought it was kind of interesting as a crop based on where I was where I grew up. I grew up in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. not a great production area <laughs> at all. And it was just a new and upcoming crop for the Midwest and the upper Midwest. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, a challenge that I was really interested in considering. So you, so you said at the time it was just an upcoming crop. So you were kind of uh, at the beginning of, vit- of viticulture being a thing in the Midwest. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So how did you find your way out to Oregon then? Well, I went to graduate school in the Midwest thinking that I was really learning about the challenges of producing grapes in the Midwest. And um, when I finished up my graduate degree, there were options to go, you know, you pretty much go where the the job is for academia. And I wanted to be in academia to be able to help uh, growers with research and outreach. And um, job came up at Oregon State and I interviewed for it and really fell in love with the industry mm-hmm. and their engagement with the university and decided to come out to Oregon um, when I got the job here right after finishing my PhD. Mm-hmm. So did you have any familiarity with Oregon before that? Not at all. <laughs> no. I just knew it was on the West Coast. <laughs> I knew, well, I knew about Oregon from a horticultural standpoint. Um, Certainly, I knew it was a wine production region, but you know, in learning about horticulture, you learn about Oregon because mm-hmm. it is such a horticultural mecca with respect to the nursery crops and the um, different small fruits crops that are grown here. Yeah. What were your impressions when you came out for the interview and when you kind of started to familiarize yourself with the area? Uh, I was really impressed with the first and foremost thing was that how many industry were involved in the interview. And I had been interviewed at a number of different universities for similar viticulture positions, and they did not have nearly the amount of buy-in and interest among the ancestry. So I remember sitting in a room up in the Dundee Hills um, at the Dundee Bistro mm-hmm. with about 30 growers or winemakers jammed into this room, all there to ask me questions and learn about who I was. And they were really interested in the, you know, who they were going to hire for this position. So, so what did that... What did that what did that tell you? Was that, was that good? It was good, obviously they're interested, but was it also a lot of pressure? Um, I, I, certainly a lot of pressure, <laughs> a new PhD student finishing up, but I think for me it was just, it was, it was good pressure. It was that they had interest, they were involved, it wasn't just a, they weren't just interested, you know, there wasn't just a handful of people there that were asked to be there, mm-hmm. they wanted to be there, and that mm-hmm. was very clear in how their questions came out, and that they saw the future for what they wanted to learn and where they wanted to advance to in the future from an education and research standpoint. So yeah, it was really impressive. I, there was no other industry group that I met with in other areas of the U.S. for other jobs that were that engaged. So it was that engagement that was really impressive. Do you remember what the concerns they had were at the time, what, the, what they were looking at, what they were asking you about specifically? Oh, they asked me about a lot of different things, but I do remember the question about different sustainability practices, um, organic, biodynamic, even at that time, and that was you know, 12 years ago. Um, a lot of interest in just ways to make better quality wines, and it was really, really in similar standpoints that they're dealing with today. Certainly now we have different questions that they didn't have back then, but yeah. So tell us a little bit bit about the Oregon Wine Research Institute and what sort of its goals are and then what your role is in in the bigger picture. Sure. So the Oregon Wine Research Institute is really 
um, I like to call it a, a working group of researchers and outreach specialists here at uh, Oregon State University and our partners at the USDA Agriculture Research Service that really is a, a way to, we all are already here, but it was a way to package us together, get us to work together in a more common way. So, you know, we all would generally have some organic relationships between uh, collaborative projects or mm -hmm. doing outreach, but this was a way to make it a much more concerted effort. So um, there's an administrative staff, two members that will basically keep us all organized mm -hmm. and uh, allow the many different researchers who are involved to get together and have a continuing conversation about how to meet the needs of the industry um, and how to advance the science. So it's um, monthly meetings that mm -hmm. we have and some core events that we do for outreach to the mm -hmm. industry. So I think the biggest thing is coordination of those of us who are already working in grapes and wine and then um, providing a more deliberate outreach. So we do a lot of outreach to the industry in letting them know our best uh, suggestions for management in the vineyard or winery or business and then providing those um, research data to support that from our varied research projects. And so what is your role specifically within that? So I'm one of the core members mm -hmm. so there's a I think about oh more than 10 scientists that are part of the team probably mm -hmm. probably closer to 15 um, and I'm one of the core faculty so I'm one the one of the main viticulturists so there's only you know a lot of them will a lot of the other faculty work with other disciplines that are related to you know grapes or wine mm -hmm. whereas my my focus 100% is viticulture so I work with grape growers and on the vine physiology and production and um, and my role is also because I also have an extension appointment a lot of my efforts are to help in that coordinating the outreach amongst the scientists mm -hmm. so for me you know, even if we didn't have the Oregon Wine Research Institute, I would do outreach. But it adds a level of um, support to my program to be able to do my extension outreach more effectively as a team. So let's talk about the extension outreach a little bit uh, on that. So describe what we mean by an extension program, and then how it's sort of been, how it's become part of the OWRI, and what and what it what the purpose is. Sure. Um, so an extension program uh, is really a long-lived program of the land-grant university system and it is actually one of the main reasons I got into academia mm -hmm. because I s extension is the kind of outreach arm of agricultural universities to ensure that the information that we generate from research is distributed to the end user in our case it would be the Oregon wine industry. Um, so I was hired mainly to do that work. Mm -hmm. You know, I also do research and teaching, but the bulk of what I do was with the extension. So as a state specialist, there's different tiers of people, but um, as a state specialist, I oversee the program for the state of Oregon, and I have collaborators, uh, other faculty who are in the counties that help support the local groups. Mm -hmm. um, so I develop programs that could be face-to-face -face or um, online or print materials that basically are just different formats for us to get the information from our research to the industry on key topics that are a concern for them. Um, so I always feel like it, it's Extension's job to be the troubleshooters for whatever discipline it may be. Mm -hmm. So for me it's been what are the challenges in the vineyard that can mm -hmm. be addressed by doing research and providing outreach to the industry. So that's, um, that's kind of in a nutshell what the Extension the extension program is developed and and I would say where there becomes confusion is a lot of even amongst academics is they'll say well there's people will give talks or give presentations mm -hmm. and so we consider that outreach but extension is where you really have an ownership to the whole process of delivering information so that's where um, I as an extension specialist and that's part of my job to think about delivering information in a package or in a way that's more creative than just saying I'm going to give a presentation at the symposium or sure. I'm going to do a lecture here or there. So it's really developing that platform for information delivery um, relative to the content area. So how do you, how are your priorities set? Is it mostly things that you're interested in that you think the industry will be interested in or are you mostly reacting to things that are of sudden importance in the industry? 
So um, definitely, I'm. I work on. Certainly, I'm a viticulturist, so I always keep at the the constraints of that. I'm not going to work in wine production. Sure, sure. I have collaborators for that, so I stay focused on viticulture. But within that, I usually look to what are the questions that need to be addressed, and there's always some that are kind of underlying themes of questions that are can be built upon later. So certainly there are things that maybe the industry doesn't recognize, but I identify as well. If they knew this, then they could do this. Sure. So there's some of those things I consider those the longer term projects or whether it's outreach or research that I do. Um, but then there's the, the immediate. And so there's always, uh, let's say 30% of my time is on the immediate. And then maybe the rest of the time is on the more kind of underlying basic principles of vineyard production or, or viticulture that I address. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely there's that need for somebody to address what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, last fall there's evidence of vole damage. And so, you know, I stop, I try to figure out what's going on with voles. I'm not a mammalian scientist, but they're affecting the vines. So mm -hmm. pull in information from my fellow extension wildlife specialists to say, you know, what, what information do we need to know? Document it, in part just so that the rest of the industry can know that it is a problem more than just what they see in their vineyard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an example of a, uh, something that just pops up. Or, you know, several years ago we had a mite issue. Mm -hmm. So these little tiny insects or mite um, would affect the grapevines. And it was a question of what are they doing? How can we manage them? So. You know, I really try to bring in the information from a viticulturist standpoint, not just an entomologist or somebody else, to bring that in and integrate knowledge um, as the need arises. Mm -hmm. So that those sorts of things will come. I'll work on them for a year, two, three, and then move on to other things as um, other issues come up. What have been the maybe the biggest issues you felt like you've had to deal with uh, since you've been here? Whether it's something that you are working on because uh, you think it would help the industry, or if it's something you've had to react to in the industry. I would say definitely the um, work I've been doing in yield management, and so that one was the one that I saw when I first came in. I was very cautious in managing um, because. The, there's always this paradigm of low yield equals higher quality. Mm -hmm. And as I came into Oregon, you know, I wasn't used to, I had to learn a lot. I had to learn a lot about just how grapevines grow here um, versus where I had been trained and just learn the system. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know, this, we've got beautiful vineyards. They can handle, you know, productivity is pretty high from a, from a plant perspective, mm -hmm. photosynthesis. Uh, ability is high, they're green and healthy, but we are limiting our crop level. And in the beginning I was very concerned about testing that because of the potential, um, uh, it's going against the norms mm -hmm. of that low yield equals high quality paradigm. So I started quietly doing some of that work with small trials in, oh gosh, about 2010. And by 2012, we had advanced quite quickly to a large-scale multi-collaborator project and because of the economy. Mm -hmm. So the economy had tanked, and now they had to focus on making more profit out of their vineyards and looking at, you know, can we do more with what we've got? And um, the trial really addressed that key number for any business in agriculture mm -hmm. is yield. Mm -hmm. You increase yield, you increase potential profitability. And so that was something that we embarked on back in 2012. And it's been really helpful from the standpoint of it was a time when they were ready to receive that information, but I also didn't know what the results would be. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't come in and say, I thought my hypothesis was that we can yield more and come up with smarter yield management guidelines that are nimble to the individual merits of the vineyard and mm -hmm. its productive capacity, rather than saying it's got to all be X tons per acre. Sure. Um, and since we've done that work, it's been really impressive to see that there has been the change in the adoption in industry from the results of the study. Um, and so we look to the state data and we see that they've had a 25% increase in their yields reported to the state mm -hmm. at the end of the year. So these are numbers that are coming in. They're still doing yield management, meaning they're cutting some crop off those vines, but they're not restricting it as low as they used to. Sure. So some of the producers who were part of the project are to thank for this because certainly I recognize that there was no way I was going to convince anybody that 
they could change their yield without engaging them in that process. Mm -hmm. But also, I thought the benefit is that now I'm getting information from a number of different sites. So we, we did this work across vineyards and wineries on a commercial scale, mm -hmm. and then quantified and analyzed the data to show that they could increase yields. And that was you know, a two-part approach to you know, not just the research, but the research was amongst the industry. They could see firsthand the results, even if they never saw the data. Sure. Um, so that was really the, the, I think one of the most important aspects of that work is that getting it into their hands allowed for them to adopt and mm -hmm. learn and change over time. So I think it's had economic impact as well as, you know, just for me, learning a lot about how the process beyond just the viticulture realm influences the whole production mm -hmm. chain um, because there are ramifications from the vineyard to the winery to the sales. So um, it's been, for me, the most fruitful uh, project. <laughs> so, literally, too. Yeah, literally. <laughs> So it's a, it's a fairly young industry still. Mm -hmm. uh, do you find that when you're trying to do things like this, do you find a lot of people fairly set in their ways or do you find the industry is pretty willing to work with you? Uh, I think that, you know, that's the kind of the two sides of this is that they're, I think the industry is young enough that they are willing to learn. And so I think that's one of the reasons they came to the table as collaborators of the project. You know, we've mm -hmm. had 28 companies take part in the project since 2012. Not all of them for that mm -hmm. every year of that project, but 28 companies over that time. And when we asked them why they wanted to be involved, it was because they had that same curiosity. So, but we also recognized in that project that even within some of these companies, they had, they had a, you know, a tough road to go mm -hmm. because they had, they had still that, that adherence to that standard of, mm -hmm. okay, low yields equals high quality. And this was going against that. So we had to, we had, there were some internal struggles just even within their own companies of the collaborators. They recognized that it was hard. Um, and then outside of the project, people looking in and watching the project mm -hmm. over the years, um, some of them have been able to change uh, because they are, have the freedom to do so, meaning that they are estate vineyards and wineries, mm -hmm. so they, they don't have to sell their fruit. And the ones that have the struggle are still those who are selling their fruit. So there is still a portion of the industry that hasn't come along with the newest information yet. And I expect that'll take some time. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, there is that um, energy out there for new information, but there still is that adherence to what is the long held norms of the industry. And some of that just comes with the territory of this industry. Sure. You know, there's some key things that, you know, over time have become the standard, perhaps for somewhere else. And what I'm trying to do is test those standards here. Mm -hmm. And is it appropriate to be used here? There's always a reason for something. You know, it may not always be what we think. And that's always the, the background that we're trying to understand. So kind of sure. um, the myth busting, <laughs> I'd like to say in some cases, but it's not just busting the myth. Um, because I, I don't want to say that these norms are a myth because they're not. There's always a reason for something. Mm -hmm. um, it's just understanding what our parameters are and adjusting them for our own climate and our own situation, our, our economic climate, as well as physical climate. Sure. I'm curious, you have 20 different sites uh, scattered throughout the, the, is it in the valley, outside the valley it's as well? It's in the Willamette Valley, Willamette, okay. mainly Willamette Valley, yeah. How, how different did you find your results from vineyard to vineyard? Was it wildly different in terms of how much crop they could handle or was it, did you find a fairly similar line? Well, it was, it's interesting because certainly different vineyards, even though they're all in the Willamette Valley or majority are in the Willamette Valley, they have different productive capacity, meaning they can, yield more at some than at other sites. And we look at everything on a per linear foot basis. So we don't look on a tons per acre basis. So that's really coming down to the same common denominator for all vineyards. So some are more productive. It could be because of how vigorous those sites are or mm -hmm. the soil type. Um, and But the, what was less different, so the diversity of the sites was greater than perhaps the results. Mm -hmm. So the results were really that uh, removing crop or lowering your yields really didn't have all that big of a difference at the majority of sites, regardless of the fact that they had different productive capacity. Mm -hmm. So some might have started up here and some started here, and they lowered the crop to different degrees, mm -hmm. um, but the change didn't cr always create the same response. 
And it, what was uniform is that a lot of them have very small differences. And it wasn't consistent year, year by year. So it wasn't what I had expected, and I think what a lot of the collaborators had expected, was for a, a standard that was so strongly held that if you, weren't, if you were to do this test, that you would be able to see big differences. Because that's the reason for them even doing the mm -hmm. practice. But we didn't see that to be the case. And so even our, our basic ripeness, so our sugars, our acids, so BRICS, PHTA, weren't affected in most vineyards in each year, which is the primary kind of, do we get to ripeness? And so it was really interesting to see that we weren't having that impact. And although we think we should because we put all this effort in. <laughs> so. so what's the takeaway then for the growers from that? What were they, what is it that they have learned that they can take forward from that? So what we did interviews and um, surveys of all the collaborators mm -hmm. and their response was that they definitely knew they could increase their, their yields mm -hmm. without compromising quality to an extent. And it, a lot of them agreed that it was between a half to one ton per acre that they could increase their yield. Wow. Um, and so for other industries, maybe in California where yield is much higher, it doesn't seem like a big difference, but it's a big difference for growers here mm -hmm. and winemakers and wineries here. And I think the most important thing that they, they said in their interviews was that they uh, decreased the cost of goods sold. So they could increase their profitability. So it was, you know, that by having more yield and more production volume in a certain tier would allow them a better profitability. And I think that's why we're seeing that general trend towards a, a slightly increased yield in the last five years was because of that others are recognizing sure. that too. Sure. So you work with the industry uh, on a large scale. Uh, how do you how do you make connections? To the industry are you approaching people? Are they coming to you? Is there a, a certain kind of person you're looking for to work with, or is it kind of a happy accident? So, or uh, well, it, because my extension appoint me, appointment, uh, I'm uh, interacting with industry a lot, and a lot of times the specific arrangements of um, research projects I might be seeking out certain vineyards at this stage I know a lot of vineyards certainly not all of them but I know about certain vineyards from having conversations with them and doing research on their sites that I can usually kind of select certain producers that I know will be really good collaborators that understand what it means to do research on site and I can work with them, but it's kind of a, um, a naturally occurring mm -hmm. process. But you know, many of them I'm not cold calling because they've interacted with me, in whether it's through outreach or mm -hmm. through research in the past. Um, some of the ways that I've interacted with the industry uh, to address not only priorities of what they're or what they're concerned about, and to find collaborators is we have these technical groups that we develop. Mm -hmm. So. In the Willamette Valley, we have the Willamette Valley Viticulture Technical Group, and that was actually developed by industry. So Alan Holstein um, developed that group, and when I came into Oregon, he invited me to take part. And it was a very small group, mm -hmm. and w within a year or so, the industry and Alan had said, "You know, can we we want to help? You know, have you help us coordinate this group?" And at the time, they said, "Well, we want you to lead it," and I said, "No, I will not lead this. This is." an industry group, I will co-lead. Because mm -hmm. I felt it was very important that it still stay with industry and that extension had its role. And I, I myself had my role, but I felt that I, I didn't want to co-opt it. I didn't want extension to take it because it, it could lead a different way. And I wanted it still to have that spirit of being or originating in and being amongst the industry. Mm -hmm. So since 2008, we've led it with, I co-chaired it with Alan Holstein. Um, and then last year in 2018, we had a new, he, hand, he passed the torch on to Ken Kupperman of Jackson Family Wine. So I co-chair that with him. And we, we it's a really good group. Um, I've shared this model with other extension faculty at Oregon State and other universities across the nation. Because it's to me, it's like a very obvious thing to do, mm -hmm. but it's not always so easy in practice. But what we do is we, we get together and we're organized, but we're not formal in the sense that we don't, you know, where there's no president and there's no administrative level. 
and we really address you know at the time we come up with an agenda for every meeting and we talk about something that's in a, of of importance for the industry with an eye towards finding answers from research perspective. So the research might be done by academics, but it also might be done in industry. So if a grower is doing a trial or a winemaker is doing a trial, they might showcase it in our meetings. Um, but a lot of times it's the researchers. And what we do there too as researchers, if we want to pitch an idea, we go there and we talk to them and say what do you think about this and they give feedback or you know it helps us get that feedback on you know getting a pulse on what the industry needs and we especially it's especially helpful for those faculty who don't work as directly with the industry mm -hmm. but at least we have that platform there that I can work with them incorporate them in industry can feel like they have more than just me um, they can work with other people too to address their concerns so um, through the technical groups, I think it's been a really fun way to have a continuing conversation about research. Mm -hmm. And we have a mailing list of, I think, about 60 people. Mm -hmm. And at any meeting, we might have between 35 and 40 people. So it's been become very popular. People want to be there. I think that's the biggest thing. When we ha call a meeting, people want to be there. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be there. They want to be there. Sure. So. How have you felt that the vineyard owners, vineyard workers, uh, people you've worked with have responded to your work since you've been here? Has it been a mostly positive interaction? Have you had people who were skeptical of what you're trying to do? I certainly has been positive. I'm sure there's been people who were skeptical. <laughs> but whenever you do research that might change or do something different, um, certainly there were there skeptics into you know treatments that I would do in certain trials. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember explaining why you do certain things and to bookend, you know, you want to do extreme treatments. Um, but most of my work is very applied viticulture and it's in commercial vineyards. So I keep an eye towards practicality. It's mm -hmm. not doing some absurd physiological trial. If I'm going to do those, I'll do it at a research vineyard or something. Mm -hmm. But I think most of it's been positive, certainly. Um, and honestly, sometimes when people are thanking me, I just think, well, this is my job, you know? And I, I'm, I'm, I feel very grateful that people have been very supportive and um, have always provided very positive uh, feedback about the, the projects I've had in the program overall. But I think that also makes me feel good uh, in, in the work that I do because I'm doing it for industry. Mm -hmm. And I certainly wouldn't want them to feel like they, they haven't benefited in some way. So, You mentioned having to kind of explain why you do what you do. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have people who expect you to have a quick fix to some of these issues, or do they understand the process? Uh, definitely. There's, I think the majority don't understand the process <laughs> of research and how long it takes for information to be generated. Mm -hmm. But what I found the way to handle that, I, there's and there's a small percentage that you know um, understand and will wait. But a lot of times they want quick answers, and you just can't come up with quick answers. And it takes time to put it all together. But one of the things I do is I try to educate people in that process and why it does take so long. Whereas you know some in academia may not be as you know patient to, and they don't want to deal with those kind of inquiries. But in extension, you know we're used to those kinds of questions coming in. And we can always provide them with something. Mm -hmm. And But I think the biggest thing I found successful uh, in outreach and in research is that explaining the process is part of the battle. And if they understand the process, then it feel, doesn't feel like we're ignoring their questions, mm -hmm. that it just takes time. Um, so a, a recent example would be this uh, onset of, or finding of red blotch mm -hmm. virus. Um, a lot of people were made aware of it. It's been a virus we've had it probably in vineyards for decades, if not longer. And now they're aware of it. So then they see it, they're testing for it, mm -hmm. and they want to know what to do. And we can't recommend certain things um, legally. So we can't recommend pesticides if we don't know what the pest is that's vectoring mm -hmm. it. Um, so then you know, I have to follow legal guidelines on certain things. But then I'll explain why we don't know what the vector is and why you can't spray an insecticide for a vector to manage a virus or things like that. And, and But we do approach it when I hear enough inquiries coming in and it's like, okay, well, we need to come up with our own data for Oregon. And then we start research projects to address those, to give them some answer in the interim. You know, we recognize we may not understand completely about the whole disease complex, but let's try what we can because we know if we don't, 
the growers are going to try stuff. So we'll we'll try to get them um, some answer and help them along the way. So. So I'm curious at this point, uh, you don't have to name any names obviously, but what's the most interesting or bizarre question you've gotten from a grower or something they, a research topic they wanted you to, to attack that you thought was kind of out of left field? Oh boy, that's a good question. I can't, none comes to mind None comes right to mind, now. okay. Yeah. If you think I, of one. Yeah, yeah, none comes to mind. I mean, there's always, people ha always are ex excited and have ideas and they want me to work in their vineyards. and. You know, I wish I could, but there's only so many vineyards you can work in or so many ideas that you can handle at one time. And sure. so, yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now that... So where do you position yourself in the industry? How do you, where do you feel you, but you fall in the Oregon wine industry? Oh, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> in terms of... Just curious, where you how you feel you fit into the the greater industry at all? Is there a, what 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 part of the, what role do you feel you play? I guess okay. in, the, in the larger industry. So, I guess I would say you know as a. I think many academics feel like they're outsiders, and they're not really part of industry. Mm -hmm. But I would say I definitely feel like I am part of industry. I'm I'm not a vineyard manager. I'm not a winery owner. But I do feel like I'm part of industry because I'm a, a part of their everyday operations. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not contacting me every day. Some might, but you know, mostly they're not, but I'm trying to provide them with tools that they're using every day. So I definitely feel like I'm a part of the industry and not a separate entity. I'm not outside looking in. Um, and I feel like, you know, where most of my influence is definitely in that where the, the work is getting done, mm -hmm. um, where the, you know, they're making decisions in the vineyard and making decisions about how they're going to make the best fruit uh, by the end of the year. So I definitely feel like it's in that the get things done sort of group within the industry. Yeah. What kind of changes have you seen in how people approach grape growing uh, since you've come into the state and the industry? So about mm -hmm. 12 or so years ago, sure. what kind of changes have you seen in the way people approach grape growing? So I think it's actually a really exciting time, um, and I thought so even 12 years ago when I came in, because we're transitioning from the older generation that established the industry, mm -hmm. and then now we see it expanding, and now we're getting in a lot of new talent, a lot of new energy from um, companies where they're hiring people who have degrees in viticulture and enology or at least degrees trained to be this is their job mm -hmm. you know their job is a viticulturist and as we have those viticulturists and enologists who are trained in these areas coming in it elevates the level of questions and it's really been enjoyable to watch that transition um, and move towards a more specific approach to how they address troubleshooting and how they want to think about vineyard design or how they want to um, change what they do instead of always doing what they did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So I see this mm -hmm. constant improvement in building upon the prior generation's knowledge. Interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about what it's like on the teaching part of your job, uh, teaching students in, in viticulture and and possibly teaching like the next generation mm -hmm. of Oregon grape growers. What, what, is, uh, what is that like for you and, and what do you what are your goals with that, yeah. I guess? So when I was originally hired, I didn't, wasn't supposed to have a teaching appointment. But very quickly, it became obvious there were viticulture courses and nobody to teach them. <laughs> and I was the only viticulturist, so two and, put two and two together, I was going to teach. I really I enjoy teaching. Um, and I think that my position really covers the three missions of the land-grant university, teaching, research and extension. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it all dovetails together. And although they are discrete packages of material or content or work that I'm doing, I try to integrate the three. And I think that's why it becomes very seamless. So when I teach my classes, I, I actually think it's a great opportunity to see the future mm -hmm. and to train the future. So some of them kind of get scared when I'm teaching classes because the, I'll explain who I am and as the extension specialist, I'm working with industry and I'm not just a, you know, up in the white tower. And so I always say this and more to be genuine, not to scare them, is that 
you're not done with me yet. Because <laughs> if they stay in Oregon, they're going to be interacting with me. They're going to be connecting to OSU Extension. Um, they're going to see me again. Mm -hmm. So um, some of them, they get a little scared about that. But then others, you know, they, they welcome that. They mm -hmm. enjoy that interaction and the insight that I bring to the classroom because I'm out there working with industry. Mm -hmm. I'm not just, you know, saying how it should be in theory. So, so I enjoy working with the students. And most of them are... Uh, juniors, seniors, or graduate students mm -hmm. that are ready to, you know, graduate and move right into industry right when they finish my my courses. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you find that they are that they are often they want to be in Oregon long term and they're here be, to be here? Yeah. So that has been the interesting thing because you know this we have a relatively small industry mm -hmm. relative to the others on the West Coast, and the majority of the students come here and want to stay here. Mm -hmm whether it's on the enology side or the viticulture side. So yeah, sometimes we're getting students from California and even though they're coming from California, they don't necessarily intend to go back to California. Um, but yeah, we have mostly Oregon students, but they, they mostly want to stay in Oregon. Mm -hmm. How do you keep, you talked about the teaching research extension as kind of the three, the three prongs. How do you balance your time and energies between those with all, given all of the demands on your time? Oh, it's challenging. <laughs> I'm try always trying to figure out a, a better way to do those things, but um, the best way to balance is kind of like the crop year of grapes. I, you know, kind of look at my, right now I'm in my extension season. I do a lot of outreach to industry from face-to-face -face standpoint. Mm -hmm. My teaching is in spring, and even though <clears throat> most people would say that's crazy, that's when the crop year is starting with bud break, but I, th it's not as hard as other times of year to do the teaching. So I'm teaching in spring and then in summer I'm that's in the full thrust of my f the field research mm -hmm. season. And then I don't you know I do all the research and w there's some extension intermingled through that phase but it's kind of I I've got my heavier seasons for certain foci but then there's always an interconnection between those. So I'll do extension year round mm -hmm. but the focus will just change percentages as the year go goes by. Yeah. Sounds exhausting, <laughs> but also very cool. Yeah. Um, why do you think it's important for people uh, in and out of the industry, or especially in the industry, to have a formal uh, wine and grape education? Uh, well, certainly I think it doesn't necessarily have to be formal viticulture and enology training. I think agriculture, horticulture training, uh, we actually did a study to, uh, to question producers as well as students what they thought they, what students thought they needed, and what employers wanted, mm -hmm. and the study showed that the employers said they don't necessarily expect that you have a viticulture and enology degree, but they wanted for at least vineyard and winery type positions that they were agricultural based and science based, um, and so I think that's important because when they're when they have these full time career jobs, having that foundational knowledge is helpful mm -hmm. to understanding the, the future productive production questions that they'll be dealing with in, in a vineyard or a winery. Um, so I, and certainly when you've got that background, it allows you to ask different questions. You know, if you understand pests and the crop cycle, you now can more intelligently ask questions about designing a spray program mm -hmm. um, to deal with those pests. Uh, whereas I think, you know, 30 years ago, somebody in my position would have been teaching them about the very basics of what it means to grow a plant. Um, and it's not to put those people down, it's just like they came, those, some of those people came up through a different route in their life. Mm -hmm. And now that we've got people who are being hired with the, the, the background in understanding agriculture, understanding plant sciences, or fermentation sciences, they can ask different questions because you already understand the basics of that system. Sure. Yeah. What do you think of the growth in the wine and grape educa educational resources in the state? Uh, since you've been here, obviously Chemeketa has boosted its mm -hmm. program, Oregon State's program has grown. We at Linfield now have our program. So what do you think of the growing opportunities and, and do you think that's something that's gonna continue in the future? I certainly think it is going to continue in the future and, and I think it's been great to see the expansion of the educational opportunities because now there are some local institutions that can provide that for Oregon mm -hmm. rather than sending people off to different states um, and having perhaps information that's not as relevant. And so I think that's been the benefit is that it's local, it's relevant to what is produced here and then you're producing a crop of students that then can work in these different areas and I think it's been excellent to see the specification of the different educational programs. So 
for example, we will train students in a certain way mm -hmm. for certain types of positions. And I remember having some students coming in, they'll go through our program and they're like, oh boy, they're more of a business student. They should have really been in a different program. Mm -hmm. So now that Linfield has the program that, that's there, we can now encourage people to go that route because it's a di very different route mm -hmm. than if they go to viticulture or enology. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and the same is true for the community colleges. Mm -hmm. um, I've also thought the community college, they fit a, a niche for people who don't want a four-year degree. Mm -hmm. They want to come in, learn, and go out and do. Um, and vice versa, I really think that there's going to be a huge strength in the students who go to the community college get trained on the hands-on first and then come here. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a lot of that yet, but I think that some of our shining future is that if students do that, then they know this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a four-year, you don't know if it's what you want to do necessarily, and you go all four years and then you're like, oh, this is the one I signed up for. <laughs> but if you do the the community college program, you can you kind of get a glimpse of that mm -hmm. ahead of time, and then you can go delve deeper into the education. So I think that we've got a really strong educational program kind of group here. Even mm -hmm. though they're kind of doing their own thing, there's, inter there's inter intermingling. So mm -hmm. when I talk to students before they come here, I say, here are your options. You know, let's find what's best for you. It may not be viticulture. Mm -hmm. It might be enology. It might be Chemeketa. It might be Umpqua Community College, it might be mm -hmm. Linfield, depending on that. So it's really finding the best fit for the student. And now we have an avenue to send students instead of saying, well, we don't know what to do with you if you want to do wine business, you know? So, sure. yeah. Sure. Um, what's it like being a woman in the wine industry, particularly in uh, research and, and viticulture areas? So that's a, a great question. Um, so my background is that I came, um, I grew up in the dairy industry. So the dairy industry seemingly has plenty of women in the, so when I came in, and I grew up on my family's dairy farm, so mm -hmm. my, my dad and my mom, they owned it, they ran it, and they were equals. And I mean, there was a lot of women, like our crop consultant was a woman, our vet, um, one of many vets were women. So to me, it wasn't that odd for a woman in agriculture, but as I started going through graduate school and uh, training graduate students myself, it became very much a concern of women who I was training. You know, how, how do I go in this male-dominated field? Which it is, when I first started, I was probably the only woman in the room, whether it was academics or whether it was industry. Mm -hmm. It didn't bother me, it didn't scare me, um, but it was something that, you know, I recognized other people mm -hmm. who were coming into the program, grading trained, it was something scary for them, you know? How do you deal with that? And I. Um, but for me, I, I think, you know, I've always held my ground. I've always been, you know, I don't let, I don't let things, I, I never perceived any issue either though. So it's not, you know, uh, I think maybe people were testing me in the beginning because I was this young woman who had just come into the industry. Um, but certainly I felt more engaged with them and it wasn't like a, a, they were testing me or creating a, you know, uh, environment that wasn't easy to deal with but yeah I've been and maybe it's the time in the industry that I entered into mm -hmm. but it's out it's been a great experience and we now see more women than ever before mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's partly because of me working with some of those people or you know there's just more women in agriculture in these mm -hmm. positions over time but yeah now we have a more certainly it's not 50 50 in meetings but we have more women uh, in our technical groups, in our um, different various industry groups um, that we're meeting with. Mm -hmm. um, and there's more women in academia mm -hmm. that we have. Not many more, but our, like our OWRI core faculty is really, I think, only two women and the rest are men, so, yeah. Do you find yourself mentoring women who want to be, do what you're doing, uh, if they're just a few years behind you now, do you find yourself answering these kinds of questions and helping them find a yeah, place? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that was the one thing that surprised me because I didn't really think about it. It was always when these questions came up from others um, in that gender divide. And so, yeah, I've, I do definitely get um, past students or students, uh, other people who have come in who weren't our students that would just, you know, talk to me about how do you deal with some of these things or how do you navigate? And mm -hmm. I think certainly some have just watched how I, how I do my extension program or how I do my research and, you know, kind of take that and as a um, information from a role model. Sure. So yeah, definitely have been 
uh, ask questions, you know, and navigating job, you know, like raising the ranks in the job market as mm -hmm. well in the wine industry had fielded a lot of questions about that. That's probably the one of the biggest, other than when getting into the industry, it's the, you know, advancing in the industry. How do you how do you answer when people ask you how to get into the industry? How to get into yeah, the industry? Um, for students, uh, you know, it's my answer usually is let's find you the right academic program mm -hmm. or training program, mm -hmm. whether it is even a training program or maybe just uh, getting them into internships. Mm -hmm. So it's really asking their background and seeing what deficiencies they have that would need to be filled to make them most successful. What do you think the Oregon wine industry is heading? What do you what do you see uh, down the road for the for viticulture specific, but also just for the industry uh, at large? So, um, for viticulture, you know, we are still a pretty small industry, and I I think the future in our research for viticulture is there's always this question of you know there's the fundamental research that is really long term and not really applied, and then there's the applied. Mm -hmm. And although there's always the respect for fundamental, I think we're still really an industry that needs to focus its research efforts on the applied. Just because we're small, we need to address the concerns that we have here. Um, I, you know, I am an applied researcher, but that's why I stayed at that, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I'm trained as, that's what I'm going to do. But really, to me, I think there's so many basic, basic from the standpoint of production basic. Um, really questions that we sometimes surpass because we're looking at a more flashy item from the research perspective that we still need, haven't addressed. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that I've done in my program, like do, what do we know about how timing of berry development? And so I did a six year project to say, okay, now maybe this will help us estimate our crop better. But you know, it's just a really simple question that nobody looked at. So. I think we've got a lot of those in mm -hmm. the Oregon industry that is going to be the future is, you know, can we stay focused enough to address those before we jump on to these other bigger questions? And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we won't have um, more fundamental work in our future, but because of the nature of our industry and, and the needs, I think, you know, we really need to have an eye towards that applied viticulture research. Mm -hmm. um, and then where the industry is advancing in the future, you know, I think this is a very interesting time because of uh, how the industry from a business standpoint is changing, how the market is changing, and how much the market will drive that change. Mm -hmm. That's what, you know, a little unknown, <laughs> but I think also a very interesting time for innovation. Mm -hmm. And I think people who have really had this, their heart set on the, really high-end wine, I think we can still do high-end wine, but it might change form. It may not be the traditional form that we've always thought about it. We've got mm -hmm. to be, think more uniquely, and mm -hmm. I think that's where our successes will be in the future, is just how do we define that road and how do we get on it? Do you see any, do you see a shift in what Oregon will be known for down the road? Do you see a, a varietal shift? Do you see climate causing climate change causing any kind of issue like that? Do you, as you look down the road, do you, what kind of things are you thinking about, like big picture? Oh, good. That's a good question. Um, I I have a hard time thinking that we'll have a major shift in our variety focus, just because it, it takes so long to get that effort, you know, to have this this brand Oregon being related to Pinot Noir. And quality, I think that's, you know, there, uh, to me there's three things we're known for. We're known for quality, we're known for Pinot Noir, and we're known for sustainability. And I think that's gonna stay the same, and I think it would be behoove us to stay the same mm -hmm. just because of the realities of the market. But I think that's also a room for advancement. Doesn't mean that Pinot Noir is gonna be the only thing we focus on. Mm -hmm. I think there's things we can start to look into that will be on the end of quality and end of sustainability that you know surpass just Pinot Noir, especially as we get warming, the warmer climate. Mm -hmm. We see that already happening. But the warmer climate has also meant maybe we're making more consistent Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't mean we have to toss the Pinot and, you know, and do, grow something else just yet. So I think there's a lot of expansion in those three areas, quality, um, variety, and uh, sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, do you see, are there any uh, major concerns you have as you look at things, things you're interested in your research now that you think the industry is going to be dealing with in a decade or in 20 years, things that are 
cropping up? Mm. Or basic questions that haven't been answered yet? Well, there's a lot of those little basic questions that haven't been answered yet. Um, I think, you know, some of the questions, we're trying to do some preliminary work on this right now is, you know, we are mainly an industry that's grown on rootstock, which is typical for wine production across mm -hmm. the world. But our early years of the industry were on own rooted vines. Now mm -hmm. we're on rootstock. We've been on rootstock for 20 years or more. But what does that mean? You know, we haven't really looked at that. Um, and so right now we have a postdoc in um, three of our labs. It's one postdoc across labs that's looking at a fundamental question of with these rootstock, how is it moderating our vigor? So it's a really basic question from that. Maybe we can determine new studies to do in the future with different rootstocks mm -hmm. or different nutrient management regimes to alter our plant growth a bit more mm -hmm. in the vineyard. So I think that's where um, our hands are tied by what we have available to us with rootstocks and scions or cultivars and then you know is there a way to enhance that or can we get new rootstocks Root, new rootstocks can take a long time to develop and nobody's really developing new rootstocks other than for nematode resistance so hmm. yeah I haven't heard about that yet so that's that's new uh, what's in the future for you personally? Uh, what kind of projects are you working on that uh, you're excited about? Uh, well, I'm continuing the rest of my yield man my long-term yield mm -hmm. management trial for the next three years to have to fill out a full 10-year project. Um, I'm also wanting to branch into some work with Chardonnay, mm -hmm. um, just trying to have better idea of how to manage for high-quality Chardonnay because we spent so much time, we meaning the industry, but also researchers, mm -hmm. looking at Pinot Noir. But now they really want to craft a very high-quality Chardonnay, and the question is, well, we're applying Pinot Noir standards mm -hmm. for management to Chardonnay, should we be? So uh, you know, there's some studies there. But also, um, it's not really fundamental research, but it's more physiological research that I've been doing with fruitfulness to really understand what drives our yield. So back to the origin, the origin of the, the bud, you know, how much fruitfulness capacity do we have and what drives that? So I've done a number of studies over the last four or five years with different aspects of what's driving fruitfulness. So we are just wrapping up a nitrogen trial and a pruning trial. So now we want to take it to another step and try to alter it a little bit more. So doing some studies like that in the future. So never bored. You're never, you're I'm never, never bored. bored. I always have plenty of work. And I'm sure the industry would, if I was ever bored, they would sure, sure make sure that I had something to, to work on. Do you have a, is there a favorite part of what you do? Do you enjoy a certain, a certain part of your job more than the rest or a certain part of the year more um, than the rest? <laughs> I know what years, parts of the year I do not like. <laughs> I definitely, the summer is, um, I, you know, every season of my work has definitely got its, its positives. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the summer is nice in the fact that, you know, we're, we're in the field. We can see what's going on. The projects are going. The lab is fully running. I mean, the, the lab is, the lab, my students in the lab, my um, staff are always working. But it's when they're in the field we're seeing and we're making decisions right then and there. Mm -hmm. It's also the time when the industry has their decisions on a production end. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I do less outreach at that time, but there's still the outreach from the standpoint of phone calls and emails that I'm addressing. So I think the summer is kind of that neat time period that's busy, but you're evolving with the season, you're, you know, listening to the questions, and you don't know what the season's going to bring. You can guess based on the weather, climate, mm -hmm. et cetera, but you just don't know until you're in it. So, yeah, so I think that's the exciting part is to see what we see, do what we need to do, and then hear the impact and kind of be that, that full circle in the summer. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the OWRI? Uh, what, what kind of, what do you see it heading in the future? Or what do you see the, the Oregon State Viticulture Enology mm -hmm. kind of overall? What do you see it heading in the future? What are your hopes for yeah. it? Well, my hopes is that we'll continue to grow as a, a team of researchers that really have a common goal of doing good work for the industry and making sure they know about it in terms of the results. You know, not that there were great, but that, you know, the results are there and we're doing that for them. I think, um, and that's what we've really tried over the years to establish our outreach mm -hmm. and establish this group. And we really do have a good group of people 
that come together and work together and we know what each other are doing for projects and that we can kind of work together on different things. So I'm, I'm hoping that will continue to thrive in the future, mm -hmm. that we can um, have a, the industry understand that a little bit more. You know, in the reality, a lot of times they get caught up in the title. Well, the title is just a title. I mean, we're all still the group of people, but the, the difference is now we come together mm -hmm. as a uh, unified group to address that. Um, so I think that, I hope that'll thrive in the future and, and as we have people move on, whether it's retirements, we're not there yet, that we'll continue to have good people uh, in the program for that. And then for our undergraduate program, um, I think that is um, going to continue to grow. And I think where it would be interesting in the future is to have more of that interconnection between the degree programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it exists already, but I think so many students don't understand that, that, you know, if I could tell anything to somebody who wanted to get trained is that just call the people who teach because we have the ability to make things happen mm -hmm. that you don't find on a website or you don't find you know just talk to us you know and it's I, I've been amazed when I'm going from a student to a faculty member how flexible we can be and uh, accepting courses from different programs and making it work for somebody who has a plan so mm -hmm. you know while it, we don't have a formal you know, juncture between the different institutions, there is an informal one that can be made mm -hmm. very easily. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious, backing up a little bit here, I'm curious when you started here, when you were coming, you just, just gotten your PhD, you're coming out to Oregon, um, did you, how prepared did you feel and how prepared were you actually, did you, how big was the learning curve mm -hmm. when you started? Well, so graduate school definitely trains you to be a researcher. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, of course, you know, you go through that design of your research, you develop, you know, you analyze the data and you publish. And so I had been through all those steps and I had done, you know, I at least had a background of having been in agriculture. So for me, it was just applying that, that, that knowledge of how to work with agriculturists and farmers. I had already grown up with that. So in the dairy industry, it's a different crop and different product. but you know you can understand um, mm -hmm. and so I feel like you know I knew I had a lot to learn still and they they hired me as an assistant prof so I came in knowing that you know I'm gonna learn from industry and they're gonna learn something for me so it's gonna be a, a give-and-take mm -hmm. so that was the way I approached it um, and so you know I, I worked really really hard in my first three years I'd say I was almost never in my office I mean I was in it but I wasn't, a lot of times I was in every meeting I could be in with industry. I was making meetings with people, whether there are other academics to learn what their area is, so mm -hmm. I'm not stepping on academic toes. Um, you know, just finding out, the, feeling out the academic landscape, feeling out the industry landscape, and then coming up with where, where it was that I needed to be and to do my job. So mm -hmm. I think that's normal for everybody coming out of their PhD to, mm -hmm. to but it's a huge challenge. And it's not for the faint-hearted. You know, you need to, you need to roll up your sleeves and and hit the ground running as soon as you get in the door. So, yeah. And in, and now having trained graduate students that I would I want so badly to train to do what I do, and they want to. Some of the deficiencies I see that come to me, and I didn't even recognize it at the time, was they 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 don't have the background in agriculture. Mm -hmm. Their first um, exposure to agriculture might have been their bachelor's. Together. Yeah, I think the biggest deficiency, um, not only in students I've trained, but new faculty that get hired or I might mentor, is that they just don't understand agriculture. Mm -hmm. They might have learned, like, you know, the theory and some of they focus on research. But when you're trained as a um, graduate student, you're trained to be a researcher. You don't understand why people do what they do. Mm -hmm. And I, I come to understand that more now and after all of these years. And so some students have said to me, but you grew up in agriculture, you know, I've never actually managed a farm. I've never done those things. So what should I do? And so some of them might just say, well, you're just going to have to roll up your sleeves and get out there. Um, I also think that's part of the issue um, with academics too just in general they didn't come up through agriculture and then they they see everything very tunnel vision like well why don't they understand what I'm working on I'm like and my answer usually is it's not that they're not listening to you 
or that you haven't gotten your information out. It's just that they have to worry about moving crews and getting the job done and worrying about whether a porta potty is on site and all these other things that they can't worry about this one little thing. Mm -hmm. So they need to rely on information coming out and being bombarded with it because they're managing a farm. Mm -hmm. And there's other things that we don't, as researchers, have to deal with, and but they do. And so I think the biggest thing is understanding that, for me, as a, both a researcher and an outreach specialist, is that we have to design our work to be meaningful to them and certainly not to um, put them down in any way mm -hmm. because they know better than we do about what they need to know or what they need to do in their their company but i think that's also the deficiency we see in some of that learning curve and it's hard to it's hard to learn that unless you've been in it mm -hmm. so sure yeah. okay, well that's all the questions that i had for you is there anything i should have asked you anything else you'd like to talk about um. here at the end it's your free forum with an open mic so <laughs> I don't know how important it is, like, because everybody can find this online, like where I went to school and like undergrad oh, and. If you want to go through your CV, that's totally fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Academics are so like that. You ask where they're from, and they always say the school uh -huh. that they came from. Not like this. <laughs> I don't know. Is it important? Sure. Go ahead. It, okay. If it is to you, it is. Sure. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I want to bring this up because so many students ask me that path, like how I got into viticulture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's from the degree standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the dairy industry, knew I didn't want to do dairy. Um, but I always thought, you know, plants, I like plants. I like the crops, I like that sort of thing. So when it was time for going into um, high, in high school, determining what I was going to do for college, I knew I wanted to do something with plant science. And I thought, botany or horticulture? And at that time, you're kind of like, what's the difference, you know? And so I very quickly, in learn, learning about it, botany was more systematics, very basic, and I thought horticulture has to do with actual production. And so I thought, you know, at that stage, I was like, no, I'm going into horticulture because I want to work with something useful, not saying that botany's not useful, but wanted to do something with the producers. So mm -hmm. that's what I came from. I came from a farm, so I knew and understood the reason behind the plant science. It wasn't just plant science for the sake of plant science. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to an undergraduate degree program at University of Wisconsin River Falls, which has the most, or at that time at least, the biggest undergraduate program in horticulture in Wisconsin. And so went into school just saying I want horticulture. I didn't know, I didn't even know of all the aspects of horticulture, but I learned all of them. Um, but quickly uh, went into my first internship in extension. I did know I wanted to work in extension. Um, just because of familiarity with extension mm -hmm. on more of a county level um, when I was growing up. And then, so when I was in uh, my bachelor's degree, you know, I, I took my first internship in kind of public horticulture. Mm -hmm. Learned I did not want to do public horticulture. I really didn't care if somebody's plant died in their backyard because to me, that's not really that important. You know, it is important if somebody's crop dies and then that's their livelihood. Mm -hmm. So I decided, you know, it wasn't, I wanted to not work with public or community horticulture. Um, and so for my second internship later in my uh, bachelor's degree, I did an internship at a research station uh, in the uh, Door Peninsula of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, so they could grow different fruit crops there. And um, that's when I learned about the grapes being grown and they had a variety trial there for the upper Midwest to see what could grow. And there were new selections from a breeding program in Minnesota. So that was interesting, but I collected data on tree fruits, grapes. I was a, a, a sweet pea, like green peas that you eat, scout for a, a, a canning company or a freezing company for that summer too. So I got an exposure to different crops and um, then I decided, I, was, I already knew at that point I wanted to go to graduate school and so I decided, I actually applied for graduate programs in vegetable production, tree fruits, and grapes. So I was open-minded, and I eventually decided, no, I want to focus on grapes, and I went to um, work, and I wanted to focus on grapes in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So um, ended up going to Purdue and working with Bruce Bordelon, who's the small fruit specialist and viticulturist for the state of Indiana. Very small industry, but um, I got to work on their flagship variety, Traminet, which is a Gewurztraminer hybrid, so it was cold-hardy for growth in uh, the Midwest. Sure. It was kind of the new 
variety that had recently been released at that time and they were growing it and so I did studies to determine well how should we manage this in the vineyard and can we enhance the aroma profile and so I did kind of a vine to wine project for my PhD and then um, in when I was finishing up I felt so fortunate that multiple job opportunities opened up um, in different institutions mm -hmm. across the US right when I was finishing because I normally you know like if you have a PhD and you want to go into academia you got to go where the jobs are so I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to interview in the same year at different institutions and then uh, came out to Oregon right after I finished so yeah and it's been a, a, a great ride ever since so <laughs> what was the what how different was it going from Midwest grape crops to Oregon grape crops? I thought I died and gone to heaven um, only because I, I kept thinking and I still think this now but my first couple of years I'm like I don't know what they're complaining about. This, this fruit is beautiful, there's no insect pests, there's no humidity, there's not rain all summer because you deal, I call it the viticulture boot camp in the Midwest because you have about, I don't know, tons more diseases you have to spray for you have insects you have to spray for and you have you know you're battling the like worst conditions it seems at harvest um so to be trained in that in the midwest and then come here it's like oh you have really only you know botrytis and powdery mildew we have to spray for we don't really spray for any insects at least in the Willamette valley you know life is good fruit looks good maybe you have to be concerned about rain but it's cool so you don't get botrytis development so i thought Oh, life could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your answers. Yeah. Uh, wonderful to hear your story. Uh, we'll go ahead thank and you. let you free now. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.